0: edition of We Need to Talk About Movies Brought to you by BanterFlix.com And now, here's your host Jim McLean
1: Hello, hello, hello. Yes, I am indeed your host, Jim McLean, the editor-in-chief of the Banterflix Movie Review website. Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast, We Need to Talk About Movies. If this is your first time checking out the pod, then welcome to The Madness. This is our first proper pod of 2021. For the last few weeks, we have been dipping into the vault here at Banter HQ and reissuing a the older recordings. And uh, now it's time to get back into, well, the virtual studio for now because of the continued lockdown here in Northern Ireland. But uh, it's great to be back, great to get talking about movies again. And this week we have a great show lined up for you. We're going to be talking about Sam Pollard's MLK FBI. The documentary is now available to rent on various VOD platforms. And the reason why we're talking about it on this show is because Dogwoof, who are the distributors here in the UK, have teamed up with the Strand Arts Centre here in Belfast. And if you go on to Dogwoof's own online player on their website, and you can rent some of their titles, and specifically with MLK FBI, you can rent the title And you can help support the Strand Arts Centre because they've teamed up with Dogwood to do this. And it means that the revenue from your rental is split uh, 50-50, I believe. So it's a great way to support the Strand whilst they're closed. We love the Strand in East Belfast. We've worked with them quite a lot over the years. And it feels weird in January not to be sitting at this point planning out an entire screening programme, and I'm sure we would have, in normal times, definitely been doing some stuff with The Strand. But anyway, let's not dwell on that. We have a great pod line-up for you. We have contributors from Slugger O'Toole, from the Golden Thread Gallery, and of course from the Strand Arts Centre. They'll be talking to yours truly. This pod is about an hour and 15 minutes in length. I'll be back at the very end in the outro with some usual housekeeping for the pod, But uh, before we get into plan, our discussion about MLK-FBI, let's play a clip of the film. Violence is self-defeating. He who lives by the sword will perish by the sword.
0: You know, when you construct a man as a great man, there's nothing almost more satisfying than also seeing him
2: as the opposite. When the National Archives puts government documents up on the web, One has to confront them.
3: Tapes from the hotel rooms, FBI reports, those are pieces of information that we
1: shouldn't have. The FBI was most alarmed about King because of his success.
3: He realized how sick this country was. We were trying to reveal the truth about segregation.
2: J. Edgar Hoover is famous for saying that he feared the rise of a black messiah.
3: The FBI says, it's clear, Martin Luther King Jr. is the most dangerous Negro in America. And we have to
0: use every resource at our disposal to destroy him.
1: So that's a clip of MLK, FBI. And this is our first pod of 2021. We've had enough of being lazy listeners, and we're not reissuing any other podcasts for a while. We're back talking about some new films, and we're delighted to be talking about this film because of a partnership that is currently going on with The Strand and Dogwoof. We'll come back to that and talk a little bit more. But before we get into discussing the film and some of the issues that arise within it, I thought I'd introduce my panel. And once again, for our first panel of 2021, I feel a, I feel a bit like Nick Fury from The Avengers. I think I've got a crack team assembled here. So we've got partnerships with, we've got people from Slug or Tool. We have people from the Strand Arts Centre. We have people from the Golden Thread Gallery. We've a bit of all bases have been covered. Joining me on this pod is Joanna Leach from the Strand Arts Centre. Hello, Joanna.
2: Hello.
1: And we have Esther Anderi from uh, the Golden Thread Gallery. Hello to you. Hi. Esther, you're making your pod debut. Do you want to very quickly tell our listeners here at Band a little bit about yourself?
0: Yeah, so I'm Esther. And as you can tell from the accent, I'm from England. I came over to Belfast for uni. So I finished history undergrad and now I'm doing a master's in law. Um, I work at the Golden Thread as an intern, a position that came after like, you know, COVID and just new needs. And the new needs that was found was obviously diversity and inclusion. So I'm here well, I'm part of the gallery to try and improve that and see what needs to be done within the art sector in Northern Ireland. So yeah, that's all about me in a succinct way.
1: Okay, fantastic. Well it's I'm delighted to have you on the pod and making your debut. We have someone who's making her second, her return performance on the pod, and that is Sarah Creighton. Not the garage people, but a solicitor and writer. Uh, It's on your Twitter profile, Sarah, so I felt the need I could could do that joke. Um,
4: You have to. You have to. It's standard. (laughs)
1: It's it's what we have to do. And finally, we have Mick Fealty from SluggerO2. Hello to you, Mick.
3: Hi, Jim. How are you doing?
1: So, Mick, you're making your debut as well. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself?
3: Well, look, for those that are politically obsessed, you might have heard of a website called Slugger 2 I've been running that for about the last 18 years, probably the longest running political website uh, or, or certainly political blog on these islands, uh, continuously running anyway. Um, and we used to do a lot of culture, but um, we seem to have run out of culture. I think culture and politics work quite well. And I think, you know, the, the film we're about to talk about uh, today, I think, really is a good example of that.
1: Yeah, I definitely think that's why, of course, it was Alan Meeben who had suggested yourself. So that's why we reached out. So, yes, we're going to be talking about the documentary MLK FBI. And Joanna, just kind of before we get into the nitty gritty and discussing the film and sharing our thoughts, do you want to tell us a little bit about this partnership that exists between yourself and Dogwoof for the, the film that we're talking about?
2: Yeah, so DogWoof are um, a reasonably small and slightly nicher, um film distributor. Um, we've worked with them over the last couple of years, obviously doing physical film screenings, which we're not allowed to do anymore. So uh, we have a couple of distributors like DogWoof have set up their websites to kind of have their own uh, video player that you can watch their films on so you can go online and you can watch I Am Greta or other previous films that they've released and you just pay like similar if you were paying something onto Amazon Um, but what they've done which is a bit different is instead of the money going straight to Amazon and them receiving a smaller amount, is that money can go directly to them and there's no middleman. And what they've done is um offered up a partnership with other independent venues like ourselves and, and we're a charity as well. So it just means that fifty percent of the ticket money goes to the Strand Art Centre and 50% goes to Dogwoof. And so that's really brilliant for us, especially when we don't have the resources to kind of start our own player or, you know, it's very difficult um, to kind of start making, brokering, you know, deals with other film distributors and different things. And we just really aren't able to do that. So this is the first one we decided to go for. The passion that I had originally was I've been starting up global film screenings and want to show more culturally diverse films, connecting them with Northern Ireland and having kind of open discussions about them. So this is a perfect film for us to start off with.
1: Yeah, it's a fantastic documentary, I have to say. Um, I watched this. I actually used the Dog with partnership um, to kind of go in and watch this. And I know the Dog with have supplied us as well with screeners for contributors. So we have to thank them as well. But uh, we will also put the link up. The link's already up on an article on our website for people who want to find out about the, the partnership and how they can support The Strand and watch the film. But we'll also put it in the bio for this documentary. So we'll open it out and we'll move away specifically from that and we'll talk about the film itself. And Esther, I'll start with you. Tell me, from, from watching the film, what did you take from MLK, FBI?
0: What did I take? Well, um, the first thing is that the FBI and American government or team will go to large efforts to kind of stalk, I guess you can put it, um, great civil rights movement activists, you know, because it wasn't just my Martin Luther, they were doing this too, it was Malcolm X, Angela Davies, Davis and stuff like that. But when it comes to other things like, let's say, white supremacy or racism, that's actually an inherent issue there there are there isn't that much done. And that was actually pointed out, noted in the documentary, that there's so much that could be done. And Martin Luther did say that in terms of like, you know, the Birmingham fire with the four girls and like the Mississippi murders, nothing was done or no one was arrested. But again, lots of effort was put into finding out what Martin Luther King was doing, who he was sleeping with, where he was, and not shocking, not surprising just
3: upsetting
1: really yeah yeah it it wasn't something that shocked me but i have to hold my hand up here to admit i didn't know the full context and the full context of which the fbi had been surveying uh martin luther king and to actually till i think I'd, I'd watched selma in 2014 because that's a big issue in that there's a lot of talk about uh, phone tapping and the harassment that he got and that really opened my eyes and it's something that i don't really Maybe I'm just looking back with rose-tinted glasses. When I was younger, I I didn't know. I that wasn't taught to me anything like that. It was very basic understanding of what was going on with Martin Luther King in America and the civil rights movement. Sarah, moving to yourself, you know, your initial thoughts and what you took from the documentary. But I suppose before we really get into specifics of certain key points and key issues within the film. Yeah, no, I it was
4: it was a really, really interesting documentary. It was um Fascinating in a dark sort of way. Um, it was a history that I I was aware of. Um, though I I think it was similarly not as much detail as it went into into that documentary. And I, I think it was it was relevant. I remember it was it was during Martin Luther King Day. I think the FBI on Twitter like praised them or said put a tweet, and everybody on Twitter was like, mm, "Hang on a minute." Um, you know. So I think I think what I took my first initial impression was I think what you said at the beginning was how much hasn't changed. In some ways, and obviously there has been certain many changes in America, but I I came away from not thinking, gosh, there's so many similarities between then and now.
1: Yeah, because when I was watching the documentary, I was watching it on the day of the inauguration of sleepy Joe Biden, everyone's favourite sleepy uncle. But uh, I kind of got surprised when you think when you're watching that documentary and then you have Joe Biden saying in his inauguration speech that one of the things he wants to tackle is white supremacy. And you kind of go, this is from the 1960s. This documentary is dealing with uh, what was going on then. I know it's from recently declassified documents. Uh, I know there's going to be more documents that are going to be declassified. I think it's 2027. I'm sure we'll come to that. But yeah, it it did feel, in the last 12 months beyond COVID, with the Black Lives Matter, it just feels so depressingly relevant now and and that's my kind of takeaway from from generally from the the film you know I do think it's quite and I'm going to choose my words carefully it's quite a dry documentary in terms of it's, it's no talking heads it's just giving you a lot of facts and I think uh, what, looking at an interview I think there's only about eight interviewees there's not a lot of interviewers not a lot of interviewees throughout the documentary and it is maybe through lockdown I find myself watching a lot of PBS America And it's the type of thing I think would find its home there, but that doesn't mean I wouldn't say to anyone listening or watching now to to seek it out, because it is in the context of what we've seen, as I say, with the Black Lives Matter in the last 12 months and that resurgence of that. I think it's an important document of looking back and putting things into historical context. That's enough of me rambling. Mick, I'll come to you, and as I say, before we go into... The specifics of no. of kind of the certain key things within the documentary, your initial thoughts and and what you took away from it. You know, were well, you as, were you familiar with with what was going on with Martin Luther King going into the documentary?
3: Well, or I you... say there's two things, right? One, I think it's an archival triumph. Uh, they actually there is a credit in the in the it, it, as they roll down for the archival edit, editor uh, who is extraordinarily important in this. One of the most impressive things is the quality of the news. Because uh, um, a lot of it is really footage. And although there are talking heads, you don't see them. It's a bit like Joyce's, you know, uh, Ulysses. There are certain chapters that start there. And you because there's no narrator, you're, you aren't told necessarily who this person is. You see names flashed, but you don't really know who they are. And it's a certain kind of uh, adventure. Now, I... I uh, I was actually around when Martin Luther King uh, was assassinated. It's probably one of those, uh, and Robert Kennedy was was shot in the same year, so it was like a double whammy. I, I was very young when John F. Kennedy was was killed, so I don't have any real adult memories of that. So it really brought me right back to that. So, so he died in sixty eight. We had our troubles in sixty nine. I, I was kind of going with the the years of the of the decade. So a lot of what um, feeds into that is very much uh, in line with some of my fragmentary uh, childhood memory of watching this stuff all unfold. Well, one of the really striking things, and this is a stylistic point, but it's, I think it's an important one. The, the thing that we all know about Martin Luther King is the I Have a Dream speech and the, and, you know, the extraordinary foresight uh, of the last speech that he made before he was shot. Um, but because it's all in black and white, because it gives you all this granular detail, because it gives you a lot of the, the progress from the 50s right through to the, you know, 62, 63, when he does the March on Washington, right to the very last year when he's starting to get into something rather different, which is a crusade against poverty, not just, not just about race. He re- and, 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 and I would say, uh, it's, it's a very, it, it, it's a, it's a, it has a cumulative effect on you. This film, as it, as it goes over, and the really refreshing thing is that when you get towards the end, you finally get to see who all these hidden voices are. Um, now, not all of them come on screen, but I think it's a really pleasant kind of release from this tension that's building up the whole way through, and then the summative stuff. That uh, one of the things they start with is a great quote from the person who uh, is introducing him on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial with this massive crowd of mostly uh, African-American citizens out in front of the the National Mall. Uh, And he calls, he introduces Martin Luther King as the, um, let me, I've got it written down here, the moral leader of our nation. Right. And, And there's just something very epic about that. But morality it's almost a morality tale that's going on here. And I think they use some of the fragmentary document from documents from the FBI, which mostly fished out through, uh, you know, kind of individual inquiries to really talk about the moral ambiguity around leadership, but the power of that moral leadership, too. So I, I thought it was very I thought it was very moving, not least because it took me right back to uh, the, the, those days of just watching from Hollywood, you know, as a kid uh, and watching those black black and white pictures. So very, very powerful.
1: Yeah, I would definitely agree. You know, it's coming back to the fact that I said I watched this on the inauguration of, of Joe Biden. It's it's kind of strange when you're watching that, and I suppose you have to put in the context of the COVID stuff, and we think of the the lack of people that were there in that day, and then we see watching later that day, you're watching this documentary, and you're seeing that kind of almost kind of in the same kind of, uh, same area, same kind of backdrop. And you just see, as you say, the moral leader, of America. Joanna, I suppose I, I spoke to you about the Dog Whiff kind of partnership and the importance of, the, import, the, the importance of that. I suppose I didn't really ask you, you know, your thoughts, your initial thoughts on on the film itself. So, do you want to tell us now what you thought of MLK, FBI?
2: Yeah, I would agree with um, Mick. I do a lot of work with archive material myself um, through um, Northern Ireland Screen Digital Film Archive. And so it's something that I am very aware of. And I, I yeah, I mean... It's unbelievable. What I kind of had written down here was that um, it's using the black and white footage mainly, but also the use of archive and other films. So what you've seen was up in the top corner, you would have like, I was a communist for the FBI, the FBI, FBI story and how that... You know, and that's why media is such a dense kind of docu- or documentary is because there isn't any actors or staged scenes for you that you know to kind of relate to characters. So it can seem a little bit impersonal at times, but then that's the invest investigation feel, I think, and looking at it in a way where trying to not make it personal about um Martin Luther King you know and it's about what he did and what happened to him and I think that was really important because if you do watch Selma you know it's a historical drama you get emotionally involved whenever you find out that he's having affairs you care about how his wife might feel whereas in this that isn't seen in that kind of way and it's not Hollywoodized um so I kind of enjoyed that and I think you know it's very important and you know like Mick had also mentioned that and at the end it was also looking at kind of poverty and the racial injustice and poverty are such a big thing in America and the thing that got me at the start of the movie was that swooning moment because I connected my laptop to TV to try and get the biggest screen I could apart from the strand and it's that moment of Wow because I've been there I've been and I've stood where he's he stood and I've been and I, I spent nine weeks in Washington DC working with African Americans um, in one of the poor places within Washington DC um, with the Arts Council had sent me as a visual artist so I kind of got to know people on the ground I lived just around the corner from Frederick Douglass's house I could see the Capitol as as the crow flies but I saw the poverty I saw the unemployment so you know for me that moment of going what wow, the scale of that the scale of filling that space and also that court well it's not corporate but that kind of government space that washington dc is the type of place that when i was there it's it, it functions from nine to five grandiose buildings beautiful museums massive statues and at night time it's lit up and it's it's very romantic when you walk around it and you don't remember those protests or you don't remember those swaths of people that stand there because you know when I was there everyone commutes in the night everyone lives in Maryland so it was like at night time I was completely alone walking around these grand buildings and it's it's a very eerie place so that you know a kind of putting him in that in that space was was kind of a very different thing at the time for him to be seen not in Atlanta or you know I think it's a very important point too
1: yeah I would Completely agree. Um, the one thing that I noticed, I think it's very early on, I'm not sure which of the interviewees says that we talk about this declassified documentation that has helped them kind of fill in the pictures and fill in the blanks a little with this archive footage. I think it's nearly 400 hours of archive footage they they went through to get this, um, to bring together this film. I think it's three years in production from from memory. But there's a key quote, and I think it's along the lines, uh, if I turn my iPad on, I will get it here. But it's it's basically saying that what these declassified documents do is help fill in the pictures of trying to get to know the man that is Martin Luther King. But it's the fact is we should never really have had these documents, this surveillance, the surveillance that they did, the underhanded nature, as I've mentioned, there's a letter that is a key issue within this documentary and, and, and a letter that was sent by the FBI to Martin Luther King to let them know basically that they were aware uh, of, of what was what he was up to and that he should kill himself. And you get surprised because I I listened to an interview with um, the film's director where he says that James Comey, who is in this documentary while he's talking in it he uses this letter now as a way to show this is what the FBI should not be doing and should not be operating and that that letter in context that that horrified me I don't know ever wants to kind of to to go first I'll start with yourself Sarah you know your thoughts on that that the letter is such a key point within this documentary but your thoughts on that
4: yeah, it is. And I, I made a note of it. and James Comey said it was the darkest part of the of the bro's history. And I thought, well, I think it's your history. <laughs> James Comey, you know, I think that is your history. You know, I think you can try and pretend that the, the, the bro, this was like some instance and in some was there was one of the girls in the film documentary. She said, you can try and pretend that this was the FBI going rogue, but it wasn't. It was done with support people people said it was it was a good thing you know the, the the footage of you know the president of the United States Johnson you know kind of talking to Edgar J. Hoover who was himself a, an incredibly notoriously nasty man in my opinion and I think really um I can't wait for the documentary I I watched it soon after the inauguration as well and it was it was that you know that contradiction between I think it was that quote at the end where someone said it's about what America thinks it is and what it actually is and it's that, you know, the FBI, the, the films about the FBI and it inter, interspersed with all those different pictures show this is how America sees the FBI as this upstanding, strong, brave defenders. And even now you'll see people, you know, even Joe Biden has talked about the FBI being these brave, noble people. And no doubt there's people in the FBI who have done great work and have, um, you know, done a lot of things for national security. But it, it's, it's that where they were raised up to this level of being these sort of honorable men and they just weren't. And I think it just shows to me that kind of undercurrent of, of white supremacy and racism that just runs through America, still runs through America. In that, particular, in that particular sense, I think it was that the other interesting aspect of that I found was how they linked Martin Luther King to communism and, and Marxism. We, maybe we'll come on to that later, but it, mm-hmm. that, it, it's that, it was that contradiction. It's that contradiction that I thought the Comey thinking, this is a dark part of our history. I thought, well, no, James, it's, it's your history.
1: <laughs> I think one of the things that surprised me the most in the documentary, and again, you're looking at things where we're in 2021 and you're looking back. But at the time, in the 1960s, I think I think they mentioned this in the documentary, but J. Edgar Hoover was apparently more popular than Martin Luther King. And it, it goes into things both Joanna and Sarah have mentioned, the fact that we had this idea, this... I, I don't want to go as far as to say propaganda, but we had this idea, I think, is it one of them had Jimmy Stewart, and Jimmy Stewart's everyone's hero. Well, he is one of my heroes. And there's a, a, a series with him or a movie with him, and, and you just think, you know yeah, of course, that all plays into our idea of of what we think the FBI is and what it stands for. And it's out to get the bad guys. But when reality, when you see what, what they're doing, it was just one of the things that really kind of surprised me. But then I suppose, you know, we're looking at things now. We're looking back. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. The power of hindsight's a wonderful thing to have all this archive footage and all this declassified documentation it helps fill in those blanks but it's just a strange thing at the time. Coming to yourself Esther your thoughts on the the letter as I mentioned and also kind of the idea that J. Edgar Hoover back at the time was deemed by America to be more popular than Martin Luther King?
0: When the letter actually came up in the documentary I just thought about the Salma scene you know when um Mrs. Martin Luther um yeah, King Junior got the letter and like you just hear the I think you hear the cries actually of her, like when she's reading it, the confusion. That's literally what I thought about. And I was just like, it's shocking, especially when you heard the FBI try to write it in like not colloquial language, but a language from someone from the inside. And then they went on about talking about how the FBI would have people from the inside like be informants and stuff like that to these movements kind of to break it from the within. And it was that idea that you can't feel trusted. And that's how Martin Luther King like, would have felt after he read the letter, being like, what is my private life being exposed just like that to everyone? Like, I can't feel I'm not trusted in my own home. I'm not trusted within my own personal space. And. The letter, the intentions, everything behind it, you can't even say it's disgusting because it's, it sh- it's not humane. Like, how can you write to someone? You should kill yourself basically because you've cheated. Is that like someone mentioned about the idea of morality and how morality is linked to this, but who are we? Everyone's humans. Everyone makes mistakes. There's no, there's no right reason to be like, yes, you cheated. So kill yourself because you've been spying, like, because you've done something wrong like really righteously you've been spying on someone to get that information and then you tell them to kill themselves so morally where do you stand like the FBI where do they stand within that text? if you get what I mean
1: yeah I, I get completely yeah. what you mean it's it's just and I know I think it's James Comey as well says later on in the documentary that there's no such thing as a perfect person I think he describes it as and this idea mm-hmm. This, one of the big things this documentary does kind of touch on, one of those key things that's still an issue you now, is kind of that idea of the blurring of what is your private life and what is your public life and, and that idea. I think I'm not quite sure which of the interviewees it is. They talk about you know the, the possibility that documentation will be released in 2027. When we see, you know, what will it reveal? And as someone said, you know, we know here in 2021, we knew probably in 1960 that Martin Luther King was not faithful. You know, what, what does that diminish his power and his impact he's had on the civil rights movement? No, not in any way. Mick, kind of coming to you now, kind of your 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 thoughts in that letter. I mean, was was that something again? Kind of you were aware of prior to the documentary? Uh, if not, you know, what were your thoughts?
3: No, I think it does a really good job of really highlighting exactly that moral ambiguity around the, the FBI. One of the things we need to remember about Hoover, and it was mentioned in the film, that was the guy who set this up. He set it up in about 1926, something like that. And I, I'm i old enough to remember him retiring in the 1970s. That guy was director of the CIA for 52 years. And he had no business really going after uh King, once he because their their primary concern in the fifties post the war was communist infiltration. It was a this was at the height of the Cold War. It was an absolute obsession, and really they were more interested in uh, Stanley Levitt or Sidney Levinson Stanley, um, uh, who was a Jewish lawyer from New York and was acting as a conciliary, if you like, to to King. And I think just interpreting the way the film war- works out. Really it was the collaboration between King and Levison that brought this and uh, gave it its huge scale, basically calling on the United States. And, and that's one of the power, powerful moments, I think, of filling out the mall, as uh, Johanna says, it, 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 getting the nation to stand to its promise under its constitution to all its citizens. Uh, but that is exactly what scared the living daylights out of the, out of the like of, of Hoover. Um, And the other thing that struck me as well is that Hoover had been for years playing the propaganda war, talking about, first of all, how the FBI had taken on gangsters, but then had seeked on to this anti-communist conspiracy nut stuff. Uh, And coming, coming finally back to the letter, I think what that tells you really, and what was really quite distressing about it, was that it had an effect on King. It absolutely had an It was there to undermine his confidence. It wasn't there seriously. It was it was morally ambiguous or w- the, the wording was such that if you read it, uh, it wouldn't say go and kill yourself. But that's certainly the message that King and his uh, his aides certainly took from it. And it clearly discombobulated uh, uh, him and distressed him, put huge uh, pressures on him and his family. Um uh, and I, and I, it was really kind of a, a, if you like, a lifting of the veil. But of course, the and what was really interesting to me about the summations as it came, it was this accounting of. It it almost begs the question: Is there a great man? Can there be a great man if there is this kind of moral ambiguity going on in his personal life? And I think when you see the effects, and what's in what I thought was really interesting, the third character, not a character, as Johanna says, it's not really a character, um, but there there are three great figures in this film. Uh, 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 Martin Luther King is, is the primary of them. Then you've got his nemesis or his shadow, which is J. Edgar Hoover. And then you've got his, first of all, his ally, President Johnson, who brings forth, uh, a, a really grabs people in Congress by the collar and makes them uh, bring forth uh, civil rights legislation, which apparently changes everything, but all the time you've got Hoover in on him, going, you can't trust this guy, he's linked in with communists, and there's a couple of great scenes which I guess are staged in the Oval Office, but with the original voice of Johnston, Johnson talking uh, to Hoover or someone in the FBI, and those shadowy conversations all kind of uh, showing us the dark side of uh, Washington and the dark side of um counter espionage Uh, i mean it was it was was brilliantly done one of the things i think uh because it's almost all shot in, in, in black and white is that it it takes the brightness off king as 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 this iconic leader and it shows us many of his other struggles that we wouldn't normally see it's like almost you know they say in sunlight um Sunlight shines, puts huge light on some things, but creates great shadows behind it. It's almost like we were looking in moonlight where you could see the light more evenly spread across the character. Uh, And I thought that was great.
1: I think the only things I can think of that are in color is stuff like the FBI story and all that kind of archive archive footage from TV shows. I think one of the, I know one of the bit of archive footage that the director is most proud of is his appearance. I can't remember who was the host, but the chat show where which is something the director admitted he had never seen before hadn't seen and then it was that when they found it they unearthed it and again that is a way of giving us a more rounded view to an extent of someone like Martin Luther King and and coming back to what Mick said you know we have someone in J. Edgar Hoover who had openly said I think is it he feared the emergence of a black messiah and they referred to Martin Luther King as most, uh, as the most dangerous negro for the f- the future of the union. It's, it's, it's alarming things to hear from, from agencies that are there supposedly to protect and serve. But from listening to Mick, this is the question, and feel free, whoever wants to answer it first, are you shocked? We have the context of historical kind of looking back at things, and we've had four years of the Trump presidency. But to see kind of the lawmakers, FBI operating in that murky area, you know we think of kind of Edward Snowden as well to a uh, lesser extent as well all that stuff are we surprised by what we see in this documentary go on ahead Joanna you have your hands up
2: well it's they're but it's it's a bully a bully nation you know you have bullies like whenever you know it was like he got sent a letter to you know to you know like you know shunning him and telling him to kill himself, like this is something that should have happened in a schoolyard you know it's it's but it's on this scale where like these are people who you know deal with everyone's lives and make sure that you know this nation doesn't fall apart and this is the there are people who have other people's lives in their hands and they act in this way and that's out of fear and it's out of fear of who he is and what they stand for and that they have no control over it like any bully does um and as you know Mick had mentioned the time that how long Hoover has been in this position in a top position within this organization and even whenever they were saying you know that um the G-man you know propaganda like the the images of these kind of you guys shooting guns and and all this kind of stuff you know it's like how can they not see they're as bad as the people that they're trying to stop or they're trying to protect the nation from but um you know they're 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 smart and they're smart bullies and i think you know that is something that maybe this extra footage actually comes out in the next few years you'll have a film about hoover you know, and what actually the FBI have done, and um, that makes me not surprised about you know some of the behaviors. I was surprised by the letter, but again, I had seen that in Selma as well. But this time, it was again with the emotion kind of re- removed, and that idea of the investigation uh, made it then seem in compare in comparison to then archive footage and actual events that happened, the letter then just seems so bizarre. you know just this kind of point where you went what what happened how did that how did that get past anyone so um you know and I think you know whenever someone said that you know the racial order in the US that's really all that was happening there and that there was a fear of that and it was that people didn't want black people to change this and this is why Hoover was liked by more people than mlk he was your kind of you know grandfather kind of figure he's been around protecting everyone for so long and you know he started the fbi to look after everyone and if he doesn't like martin luther king then of course you know you won't either like people have to kind of remember you know this kind of the uncle sam kind of way that people get sucked in and that's the same thing with people getting obsessed with america being great again like with trump so it's this kind of you know way of uh yeah i don't know i'm rambling now but
1: no you're fine because you know I, it, it did you know when you when you talk like that and when you hear kind of the way that they they know what they putting it kind of they sold the fbi and its image you you don't get surprised you sadly don't get surprised when you see that there's support for people like Donald Trump, and that that's a bit of a leap, I know, but um, it's just when you look back at things, you, look, you come back to that point I said at the start of this recording. It's it's sad how things that you think from the 1960s should be no longer relevant issues, no, should no longer be things for aspiration or anything like that. That they're still issues, they're still as relevant now as they were back then. It does. It does depress you. And, you know, one of the things, to, now, this is the one thing I will say that I would have liked to have seen more of in the documentary or even a, a documentary in its own right. And we've, we here hear Northern Ireland, we've had a history of informers and things like that. But one of the things I was most surprised at is the, the, the amount of people within King's inner circle that were FBI informers. Like the photographer that they said was there from almost the start from that civil rights movement had taken so many of these iconic photos. That's That genuinely surprised me. There was other people that, again, were in that inner sanctum, that inner circle of King's political movement and the civil rights movement that were that were informers. And I suppose, you know, Mick, coming to you, I mean, that will be no surprise. We've seen that, you know, that has been... Informers have been; in, they've been a very topical issue here in Northern Ireland. But uh, that was one thing that I find really surprising in this documentary. That I maybe, if I was to criticise that, I, I would I would want to see more about that, or even, as I say, a documentary on its own about that story.
3: Yeah, I think there's potential in that, but you know, it is a standard operating procedure in the way generally that you get an informers to find some compromising information about them. I mean, anybody wants to see some interesting, an interesting account of some of the uh, compromising behaviors in the Vatican at the moment. You get themselves a copy of the London Review of Books this month, uh, where top column to has written written an amazing uh, account of what goes on in there. Anywhere where there are secrets kept, there are huge vulnerabilities to informers, particularly to federal agencies in the US who have, you know, uh, huge, deep pockets, and the same with the Secret Service over here, you know, the MI5, MI6. So I think that's just, for me, that's just part of the deep landscape. But the, the deeper question that I think this question really throws at, and this is something I hadn't really realised, because obviously I was, as a kid, kind of almost traumatised by the news of Martin Luther King's shooting at the time, so I hadn't really thought about what it was he was doing and how it was different from what he'd done earlier on before but he was trying to lead a thing called um uh the poor people's campaign you know and and, and uh, there are snatches in the film that talk about it was about trying to um address the issues of the poor on and the disinherited and he specifically talked about african americans native americans and poor Appalachian whites and it seems to me you know what you've got there is King, really not that interested in race per se, but in inequality, lack of opportunity for people kind of to punch up, uh, in a, in a in a republic which was that, that holds all men equal, uh, and is still struggling to hold that promise. That's why, in a sense, um, African Americans are still in many places like Massachusetts, Boston. You know, there was an interesting um, report from the Boston Reserve Bank just talking about how few assets African-Americans in Boston have compared to uh, the average. And you compare that to places like Atlanta in Georgia, where there's a critical mass of African-American business owners who who have no problem employing other people who like them. And this is the thing that really struck me about the G-Men, is they were able to say there was an archetype because... Um, Hoover had an idea what what a G man looked like. He had to have been some kind of a sportsman, an athlete. Generally, they were over five foot tall. They were nearly always male, and all uh, and and in every single case white. So there was no and, and the and the mocking. One of the reasons why they knew is f- the letter was a fake because it was some white G man trying trying to get what he thought the how black people. They would uh, would send a threatening letter and and you know badly failing so to speak. Um, So there's something there about the he he, his instinct I think was for the fight for inequality, not just for African Americans, but for everyone that he saw down down downtrodden within within the federal state. And for me, that's an epic story. You know the the footnote about uh, the informers and all the rest of it. Well, we now know certainly from our experiences in Northern Ireland that that's how it's worked, that Dennis Donaldson is a classic case of someone who's compromised and then is is uh, the state is then fully open to uh, taking them in and pulling them in. And we've seen at least hints that I'm – not, I'm not sure we, in our lifetimes we're ever going to see the bo- books on Northern Ireland fully open on that score in quite the way. You realise, you know, freedom of information, a lot of this stuff has come through that – the Americans have had freedom of information. Whatever their shortcomings as a society, they've had it for nearly fifty years. We've, we've had it for about twenty, and we're still finding government departments that won't even tell us really, you know, relatively uncontroversial detail in case it embarrasses the minister or the as the OFM BFM civil civil servants once laughingly said, "If we give you this detail, the minister might not get re-elected." <laughs> So whatever we think about American standards, our own standards are probably uh, a long way short in 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 that respect.
1: Yeah, we'll not throw stones if we're in glass houses. We'll definitely go for that. And, and just kind of, I think it was Joanna, you mentioned it, and just listening to Mick, and I don't want to be sensationalist in that way, but when we talk about what Hoover had and his vision he had for the G-Men, does it not in any way remind you of Hitler and the Hitler Youth and that idea of that vision of kind of what someone should be and what he wants and what he wanted it to represent. Again, I'm not trying to be sensationalist for sensationalist's sake, but there's an undeniable kind of similarity and kind of, of of that approach on kind of sell of what he thinks the youth and what he thinks a, a G-man should be. Um, That's just me. Moving away, coming back to yourself, Esther, we talked there about the freedom of information and the fact that they, we will see more information potentially released. We're not 100% certain it should be released in 2027. Is that something, that you, your general thoughts on, on whether, I suppose in a real argument on whether it should be released or not, but what would that interest you to know that little bit more, that further details about things that we're talking about here and now?
0: I think I want it to be released because it's like, you know, it's part of history, you can't hide it. Um, it's what's happened. I think the main issue is about how it would change the perception of Martin Luther King. That was what was all the um people who were interviewed, the interviewees, that's what they kind of came towards. And from actually just going online and seeing everyone's perception as well, it's how it, people are going to see him. It's a decisive thing. I think cheating is something very interesting because there are lots of people saying that, oh, if he's not loyal in his marriage, he's not gonna be a loyal person. Or he's not like you know someone to be trusted and I'm just like does it make a difference you need to separate the art from the artist I know that's like such uh kind of infamous like thing but him cheating has nothing to do with what he did for the civil rights movement him cheating has nothing to do with his ideologies or his policies him cheating has nothing to do with anything but having that information it would just muddy up his character a little bit more and it's is this a fact that, would do you want that to happen? Because there's gonna be a huge gen, like another generation coming up being like, oh, you shouldn't glorify this man because he did this or because they found this, like, you know, the rape, the rape accusations, the uh, um, orgy, like accusations and stuff like that, that definitely would muddy up a man. Because I think as humans, we like to feel like we are superior, not superior, but like morally superior to others being like, oh no, we won't do that. Or we don't want to see someone that we care about do that. So we can stand on our high horse and be like, yes, he was a reverend. He shouldn't have cheated. He shouldn't have been in a rape allegation. He shouldn't have been in the orgy. Therefore, we won't support him or anything that he believed in and just tarnish anything like that. So, and that line, I feel like it shouldn't, or maybe it should be released with like a warning, you know, being like, this is what you see, but you need to kind of separate it from reality, or this is what happened, but it was found in like, it was the gap, information was gathered in a muddied way. Because if it wasn't for the FBI tapping, we wouldn't know this information and we'll just go on thinking that Martin Luther was this amazing man who is morally amazing and stuff like that. So.
2: I can I quickly say something, Jim, with that? This always just brings me back to religion in America. If he hadn't have been um, a preacher, if he hadn't have been married, if he was single man, who was having his ladies and um, enjoying himself in whatever way he personally wanted to.
1: Nicely put, Joanna, nicely put. Mm-hmm.
2: So, you know, this would be different. And what you can see now is, like and like you're saying, Esther, future generations, future generations. Generations now, people, you know, don't all get married when they're 21. Don't stay in the relationships that they're in. And the same thing, historically, you need to think, and, you know, what is a sin, as well you know what in what you know in people's minds and I think the church at the time and some of the church now is that thing and that pressure of things behind closed doors you don't do anything wrong you don't tell anyone you're doing anything wrong and if you're married you know that's the sanctity and yes of course it was hypocritical of him to stand up and be a preacher and do the other things that he was doing but at the same time he's a human being and if he wasn't in those positions and he was a single man doing it another time not religious um you know these days it it wouldn't be written down like this evil that it was for him perhaps
0: yeah in fact I would have to say sorry I would have to say about it's sometimes to do with race as well because if you look at Bill Clinton for example Bill Clinton he cheated um and in fact it was like a massive one but people still see him as this kind of hero like oh look it's good old Bill but because a black man dared to cheat a black like reverend dared to cheat is this like oh no hearsay let's all cry it's not this it's not this I mean, it is the same, but it's not treated the same way.
4: Yeah, that that's the point I was going to make. I think it was because because I mean, Martin Luther King was basically asking for to be treated equally, and he had to be on some higher higher moral plane. You know, I, I you know it, it it's that people you often see this now when people come to ask for equality and rights, they have to hold themselves up to a higher standard. You think of people throughout history that uh, particularly in this country that we uphold. You know, um, I mean, Churchill is a character that has has really undergone a real change over the past couple of years and despite the fact that the man was out and out racist and was arguably involved in in genocide in India you know he is upheld as this upstanding gentleman but for people um who come forward and ask for equal rights they are expected to be above and beyond and I do wonder you know if 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 that was why they went for this because they knew that if they they wanted that would be if they exposed this about King about his affairs it would give people a reason not to listen to what he was going to say because people are all people are always looking for reasons not to believe activists and to believe people when they come forward, and you see it now when people come forward and ask stuff. It's like, well, they're not actually that nice a person. And I think there is. I think I agree with Esther's point. There is a race element to this, and that for for Martin Luther King, he had you know he had to be seen as this 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 pure perfect man because there would be if they, he was anything less than people would just ignore him, and which I'd is unfair.
3: I'd add something to that, which is. Actually, the truth is, if you look back at that era and the epic nature of his rhetoric uh, and what it signified, the the huge scale of the problems that he was talking about and successfully addressing, that prurience is in the FBI, but it's not in journalism. One of the key differences between uh, MLK and, um, say, the likes of Clinton is it came out during Clinton's actual office kennedy got away with it you know i i i I don't know that nixon was involved in any of that but 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 the the point is now we're not really interested in the epic we're interested in ever and this this film not because i mean it's no fault of the filmmakers because i think they handle it really powerfully there's a testimony towards the end and says look king's work will simply not be affected it's too robust to be affected by the tittle tattle of what happened uh what noise what noises off there were and i i think that's really i think that's a that is a real shift in times if you you watch this stuff and it really feels like the whole nation is moving uh, and nowadays you feel well, their only move as quickly as they can find whatever dirt they can get on Biden or or Kamala Harris or w- whatever else it is, uh, and, and and American politics. And I think politics in the world generally has gone from this epic scale to this almost sitting room drama uh, of who's 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 messed up, you know, more badly than the next one. I mean, we've just gone through four years. Of listening to a president who communicated through tweets, for goodness' sake, uh, and did it by scandalising a, a liberal media that forgot that they had to hold him to account for the way he ran the country, not how he wrote, his, uh, not how he wrote on his Twitter feed. Uh, and I think that's it's, that's one of the reasons why I find this really refreshing: is to go back and find someone who is a, I consider to be a grounded hero.
1: Yeah, I would, I would completely agree, Mick. It's it's the idea. And I'll I'll go around the panel. I'll start with you, Joanna, whatever way I'm looking at him in my screen. I mean, this doesn't... The fact that Dr. Martin Luther King was an adulterer, like, one of the things they talk about in the documentary is that the notes the FBI had, we talked about that orgy. It was audio recordings, but yet they somehow scribbled down he looked and smiled. I don't know how you can kind of see video from audio, but maybe more will be revealed on that. But I don't think that, as, as Mick says, it, it doesn't change, you know what he achieved and what he tried to achieve with the civil rights movement. I, I don't think that in any way. I I don't think we, I suppose it's this danger of, do we want our heroes to be squeaky clean? Do we want these people to be, you know, as, as James Comey said, these perfect people. I, I don't think that, I think it dehumanizes the man and it, but it does not in any way take away from his achievements, you know, for you, does it take away from, from, from these kind of revelations that aren't revelations or things i, I knew off before the doc watching the documentary, but they don't change my thoughts on the man himself.
2: No, it doesn't done anyone in any high power situation, and even like within the church itself the the hierarchy within the church those a lot of priests and preachers are targeted. By other people, as this kind of oh my goodness, sister, this wonderful people, and they have almost people that can worship them. And so, if you're a man in his position, you're having a really hard time, you're stressing out about something, and you have I'm not saying women throwing themselves at him, but these people who idolize him and will go do anything for them, you can get into situations where that kind of worship level boundaries get crossed and that is like throughout all of the church this happens all the time and I think as well you know I'm not like making excuses for him but you know in Selma you get to see a bit more of like you know the struggles that he's going through the emotions he's going through him as a person and you know I don't think he can judge you know just things that people do you know it it doesn't take away from anything that that he had done and I think you know I'm not sitting here you know in a court about you know his wife wanting to get divorced by him you know it's you know and that's why I was talking about kind of these, these rules in society and that's why I'm going back to if he had been a single man things would have been different um and so yeah it doesn't take away what he's done but what blows me away is that I'm sitting here I'm 35 years old what have I done you know, this guy was thirty-eight years old, and and there's such a short period of time out of that—not for his entire thirty-four years, um, thirty-eight years, um. The stuff that he was able to do and what he was able to achieve, he was also in the right place at the right time. And you know, and I think him actually being a preacher really um prepared him for being a public speaker and prepared him for being who he was and being strong. And also he would have had more followers because of his religion. So at the time, it probably worked very well for him in the position that he was in. And I think that's why he was kind of able to get to that point. And what you see now, like if you think of the of years that he changed civil rights movement like imagine the poor people's um campaign if he had been able to continue that if he had been still alive what else he would have been able to do at the time but what you find is then when he was cut in his prime that was a massive thing for for all people of all nations that weren't white you know that was a point where things went back to Being that kind of ruling um, of white people and of different people who don't listen to the civil rights movement, don't think about other people and things are left to the point that they are now. If someone stands up and tries to be an MLK today, it'll be so much harder for them as an individual to be able to make as big a difference at this time. Because again, you know, there's so much going on. And even when Mick was talking about, you know, Twitter and, you know, social media and things like that. But I just, I just wonder, you know, what else he could have done if he he hadn't have died at that right time, at that right moment where injustice was so rife. Whereas now injustice has just always been there. And it's just in the carpet. And it's just in America, that's what's kind of there. Whereas this could have been so, so much more of a,
1: a big thing you know yeah it's true you know it's it's what a i know but you know it, it's very true what you say esther coming to yourself you know your your thoughts and the revelations on king's private life you know I, I it's my own humble opinion i don't think it changes my own mind on what he achieved i don't think in my mind it does but for you do you think it can really shape what he what he what he achieved in that limited time
0: so I found out that he cheated when I was like, what, I think maybe 14. I saw it on like one of the blog threads when I was four. I'm like 21 now. So like I was very quite young. So I saw it and I was like, Oh my God, that's the worst thing you could ever do. Like, how can you be so holy, like holier than thou, a religious man and cheat? And like then after that, I was like, yeah, you can't do this, but I said that for him, not his work. Like it doesn't change the way I thought about what he did. He still without him. The civil rights movement like John said would not, have got, would not have gone as far as it went like we don't know what type of world we'll be living in now if he did not do the work he did so the fact that he cheated the fact that my gut instinct at the age of 14 was he was a horrible not a horrible man but like you know a horrible person to do that and now obviously going through my through my ages realizing that people aren't perfect like yeah 14 year old you can think that that's the worst thing that can ever happen in the world there's a lot more bad like a lot more horrible things that can be done um so like coming from that I tell my brother I look to my family and I'm like this is not the worst thing that someone can do just because he cheated it's not for us to judge him that's his family that's his family's business if they want to have their own way with him and like just like decide to abandon him completely that's his family's business that's not our business because Where do we have a stake in that conversation as the public? We don't, we have no stake in that. In the same way that if I cheated, I wouldn't want some a random person being like, you're a horrible person, because they don't know the story. We can come up with like lots of arguments, lots of excuses for why he did it or why he shouldn't have done it, but it doesn't change the fact that it's happened. And we don't have an excuse for it or an excuse to say, oh no, he shouldn't have done it. It's done and um his family i'm not sure if they've forgiven him for that aspect but it seems like the way that his daughter still goes on on social media to like praise him every martin Luther for king day to understand the work that he's done it seems like the family's come to terms with it and are still like happy to praise him as a father so we have no rights to be like yes this is the reason why he should be hated slash everything he's done should be like pushed to the wind so
1: yeah Yeah. you talking Joanna and Esther it reminds me a little bit of kind of to an extent of we've seen recently with Marcus Rashford and kind of who's become the real campaigner for the the kind of the the school meals and kind of been such a big had such a big influence on UK politics but we've already seen that's moving away from you know the kind of um, security side of thing to journalism we've already seen like figures like that already kind of trying to chink away at him and looking for any excuse to kind of not kind of devalue what he's kind of do. I think was it earlier this year or last year? Sorry, the Daily Mail kind of were bringing up the issues about that he had bought so many houses for his family and things like that, and which is completely irrelevant. But all that does to try and do is to kind of undermine someone, and that's someone who's putting his head up above the pulpit and is kind of standing up for what he believes. And things you see that there will always be someone out there who will be looking to to chink away. But that was just listen to us both, Sarah, coming to you. You know your thoughts. Does is, is it really? as as esther has said there are worse things that that people can do um i'm not kind of in any way kind of saying that's oh it's it's not that bad what he did but does it does it kind of take away his your idea of his his impact as a civil rights
4: no no it doesn't take away any of the any of his achievements and what he did i think any revelations that come out i think impact how we see him as a person. So you know, if something came out that he was present where someone was sexually assaulted, raped—I mean, that—that that is going to change how I think about him as a person. But I'm not going to just—I'm you know, not going to say, "Oh, well, everything he did was, was awful and terrible." You know, I think that when we look back at historical figures, the truth is really what matters, not really how we feel about them. You know, when I mean coming back to what I was talking about Churchill earlier—I mean, Churchill was an awful man. He—he he, he did also very good things. You know, and I think that's fine. You—you you take the whole person you know and i think you know i think that's not that i'm comparing king and churchill by the way and put them on the same pedestal but just as an example but it, it the truth is what matters you know and it, it, it's if if it doesn't take away anything that he did you know the man is 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 praised and upheld and he did so much and i think that's that's just how always we, we how we will always see him even if we might change how we view him individually um and but i think that's fine you know it's fine to look back at people in history there's even people alive today you know we 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 have idolized him. I have a picture of Obama on my wall. I mean, Obama was not a perfect person. He was not a perfect president and that's fine. And I think we need to be okay with, with looking back at historical figures and just being like, nah, you know, they weren't really how we thought about them when we were younger. I think it's healthy for us to do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I know that's been a big thing that's arose from the black lives matter. Mick, coming to yourself to kind of wrap up this a little bit, you know, do these revelations for you kind of change your kind of, thoughts on on king's achievements and what he achieved within the civil rights movement
3: yeah i think i i think i have a greater appreciation of the breadth of his vision to be honest you know i hadn't really picked up as i said before and really picked up the nuance of what he was doing in the last year of his life and this campaign on uh, you know to basically bring poor people into the riches of the republic the american republic i, I mean for me the whole thing It's less about, I mean, what I think about King is really irrelevant on the scale of things. You know, it's what I think of his personal life is even less. You know, I may be shocked at some of the things that come out when they're released fully in 2017, but I'll leave it till then to make those kinds of judgments. Um, I think this film, if we go back to that, is... You know, my first thought was it's a morality tale. But then, no, morality tales are sort of the things that Greeks always tell you to uh, warn you away from uh, terrible things that might happen. It's sort of related to tragedy and stuff like that. But actually, I think it's more of a nuanced essay in morality. And the fact is that King was no more or no less human than the rest of us. Uh, There was a huge amount of um, pressure on him. Well, one of the things you know there's an there's an interesting thing that i think we irish and uh, you know really take for granted a little bit especially with the decline of churches um both north and south is there's something comes in with all the stuff that we are in a rush to get rid of and to throw off our backs that there's a whole line of moral thinking that we're in grave danger of losing And there's a line really near the beginning of the film where they talk about who else would have done anything this stupid but a bunch of people who go to church in Alabama. Because who else would think they had a pup's chance in hell of of winning? And there's a point where one of his, uh, one of his confidants says he warned us that we were mad to take this fight on. And yet we did it because we had moral Vision or account- it, he he referenced again the word moral and it comes up time and time and time again through this film and the, and it's moral vision or it, the ability to see the world as it might be rather than just keep on accepting it the way it is Marcus rashford I think is a good point not just because you know it, it, he's he's um because of his race but because of the moral stand what what rashford has done is what king did was to make visible the otherwise invisible the the the, the people who are basically having to take it uh, as the rest of us make all our decisions in absence of any real knowledge of what they're going through and and i think you know and it's an easy point to make that he has maybe more than one house but he said premiers i mean the problem there is the premiership football thing It's, it's nothing to do with rashford um but because he has, and you know, because he has that opportunity to pick that fight not just once but twice already, and win against a, you know, a, a political class that no longer seems to recognise that morality is a thing they have to reckon with, um, I think that's. I, I think King is a really powerful story, and um, and all the better for us seeing it in this moonlight with the light and the dark more evenly spread than just the charisma of a great man.
1: Yeah, completely agree. You know, we've been talking for just over an hour. Um, I think we're all very positive about the documentary. As we said, you can get that through links and you can help support The Strand. I would say this kind of, as we start to bring things to a close, I mean, is there anything else that anybody really feels that they want to discuss or anything we haven't really Mentioned at this point, or is there anything like for me? I have a few suggestions for for further viewing. I would always suggest they're pretty straightforward kind of suggestions. And if anybody even wants to kind of bring anything in, kind of a contemporary kind of context and the revelation of what this documentary is talking about and putting it into now in in twenty twenty one.
4: Can I can I just go in first? I think it was just a couple of quickly things. I think for me, the the one when I was talking earlier about the similarities was the link between. How they linked communism to the civil rights movement, and um, they they're doing that now with Black Lives Matter. They're saying oh, it's a Marxist cultural Marxism and all this nonsense. And I think it it, it there's an interest there that you can tie that into absolutely in America as to how leftist ideas and socialist ideas have been seen in America for a very long time, um, and how they've they've always had this very weird. Obsession with communism, and obviously it comes from the Cold War, but I think it goes deeper than that. It's very much about um that King, what King wanted to do was to, to shake the foundations of America and what it was. He was anti-capitalist himself, and that was a threat. And that was part of the reason why um he um was challenged so much. So that was one thing. And I also just think that we were talking about um how King is perceived. I also think how King is perceived has changed anyway. Like you get people quoting Martin Luther King now to use and they use him to go against the Black Lives Matter protesters. They kind of said, oh, they're the same. But King was, you know, King was shot and killed and and he was the same things that are fired at the Black Lives Matter protesters was fired at King as well. So I think that's the only thing I really kind of wanted to say is how I think with ourselves, we have we have changed how we think about King. He's he's upheld as being like this very noble civil rights activist. But you just know that the people quoting him today would have absolutely slayed him. At the time,
1: there is that line. I'm not quite certain who said it near the end of this documentary, where they talk about violence will not succeed in in changing this nation. And it was and it was very kind of I suppose we have those images from what we've seen only a few weeks ago in Capitol Hill was kind of just very fresh in my head. And we've we've had that, and over the last four years, the, the the right versus the left, and all those issues that have arose within that. And of course, we have the Black Lives Matter that as i say you know they're, they are still as relevant now and as they were back then joanna esther make anything you want to come in to throw in as we as we wrap up this podcast
0: yeah i just had one is this to follow on on the point that about if a white person did this or if a white man were in the same position as martin Luther king how they wouldn't get as much not grief but basically grief but because um the documentary actually rightfully pointed out the idea of sexuality and Black men, particularly how it's like changed throughout the ages, Um, you know, not even changed, how it's perceived throughout ages. And I think that that is so relevant to today uh, worldwide. It's like an issue for Black men to become this hyper-sexualized being that everyone sees them as. They see them as this like, predator basically and that's why people were very uncomfortable with the idea that king was um having different extramarital relationships the idea that him in an orgy or like you know being so vulgar in the rape the rape accusation like it resonated and hit home and i think it would hit home even to black families not because um In the documentary, I think what we got was white outrage in the sense that it was the white woman thinking that, oh yeah, when, um, Hoover sent out the, um, kind of newspaper article about him being a notorious liar, it was, you normally got the white voices saying that he's too smart. I never liked him. I didn't trust him. But the idea of sexualization and like this predator has been ingrained within the site, well, like black society and white society to death, to fear the predator white, black men, sorry. So within Black families as well, they'll be shocked and like it will morally shake them. So his supporters will be like, "How can we support this man who is the epitome of the Black rapist in a sense?" And yeah, I didn't like that, but I thought the documentary did well to point that out as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that also plays into you see, and the documentary touches on it as well portrayals in the Birth of the Na- Birth of a Nation. You know, yeah. that's all things that, that that I suppose comes from that. Joanna, Mick, anything you want to to throw in at this point as we bring things to conclusion?
2: Yeah, um, yeah, I agree. Like what Esther was saying, it's it's just a it's a whole other kind of worms, and even just like the footage that was shown depicting men in the cartoon in the cartoonist way and this kind of um, evil figure. Has sadly not went away, uh, even to the point where people can't walk through the park in peace without someone else accusing them of attacking them or antagonising them. Um, and I think there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of other documentaries that um, cover it. And one thing that I think would go quite well along with this one is "I Am Not Your Negro," which. Um, it's a difficult one because I was almost wanting to do a podcast with it, but I don't, I'm not very comfortable with saying the title all of the time and the way that, you know, it, even at that, like, even the title is so abrasive, you know, um, it it it's very different, but it will go through and talk about a lot of people kind of around Martin Luther, um, Martin Luther's time and other um, kind of black men, essentially who kind of led the way Um in America at that time it's on the QFT player which is the other independent um cinema in Belfast so you can watch it through the QFT player I think for the next week or two and it's a uh, £3.50 so you know that's that's a really good price and it might be on the BFI player as well um but yeah I think it's just more you know it's important for us to go and watch other films watch films Black Voices watch art that is made by black people, you know, and especially like the next global film screening. So let's do a little plug, which is in March. Um, We're going to be discussing along with the golden thread and join her network, um, the recent series um, that Steve McQueen has been doing on the BBC and the films that are being made there about very specific times. In England and kind of again it's one of those things that kind of normalizes those black males that you Esther that you were talking about and seeing people as normal people as not scary as as husbands as lovers you know it's and those are the things that we need to champion and we need to kind of just be watching and promoting and pushing that to other people because you know you know I think film is one of the best ways to learn and change your perceptions.
1: I would agree, John. You know, it's, it's well, cinema is that window into other people's lives. People that you may never meet, may never get the opportunity to speak to, but by spending time with them through an hour and a half, two hour of a film, you can learn more about their life. And with it, I suppose, more about yourself. Um, the, the documentary that I went out and, and really finally sought out last year at, at the reemergence of the Black Lives Matter was Ava DuVernay's 13th. Which is just an absolutely fantastic documentary, and it does. It's 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 in a way it's a gateway drug. It helps you kind of see things from somebody else's point of view, and then you can see then into a film like to go full Jim McLean horror cliche something like even just Get Out, you know, which is another film I absolutely love, made by a black filmmaker who has interesting things to say about society and the portrayal of black people within society and popular culture, popular culture. And um,
2: 13th is on Netflix for free. Is what I yeah. wanted to mention there.
1: Yeah. Mick for yourself, just kind of, as we bring things to a close, any kind of
3: closing thoughts? No, I think um, in terms of learning, I think one of the reasons why this lear- that this film works is that it's it, the archives, as I said, at the beginning, I think mm. there's a lot of really new, fresh stuff on an old subject. Um, what do I take away from it, well, I, I you know, I, I, I will look up some of those films that you've just mentioned. I think it's it. it I think people should be inspired. They should be inspired by it. Uh, one, it's a reminder that democracy is not a thing. It's us, and democracy is only as healthy as the full muscular way that we engage with it. And if we refuse to engage with it, then it will very, very quickly fall in to the autocrats, the hands of the autocrats, and uh, and life will simply get worse. And, and I, I think that people should, uh, there's a line that comes from the very, very beginning. Uh, and, and I think this is really in de- uh, something that we need to remember in this moment, when our voices are all breaking up, when we're being invited to disagree with each other. Not, not, not always on points of sub- substance, but just for the sake of giving up, and it goes, and this is all to do with the march on Washington, uh, we're going to swallow up hatred with love. Uh, That may come across corny when I say it. It's not corny in the film, and it's really properly, strategically well-framed, because they knew as they walked on Washington just how frightened the rest of white America was going to be. But they were determined to come and sublimate all those... um, stereotypes, and basically call the United States to be everything it could be. That applies to the United States, applies to us in Northern Ireland. We've got some really deep wells of hatred that we've really got to calm. And the only way to do it is to smother it with love and and, that, and collective action and moving towards the future together as equals. And that is a job that needs doing now. It's not something that was done for us in the 60s, uh, or even in 1998, with the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, that has to be done every single day by every single one of us.
1: Mick, I think that's, uh, you know, I it's a lovely way to bring this podcast to a close. I can't think of any of my typical rambly-canny-rambleness will we'll not will not kind of get away. So I'm not going to undermine that by talking too much more. But no, I, I again, it's the cliche thing. I always get mocked for saying, I totally agree with what you're saying, it is so true. It's not just kind of, there is no us and them, it's just us. And that's why we've all kind of got to work together in some time, of shape or form. So yes, as I've said earlier on, I think we're all very positive about this documentary. It is available through various VOD platforms, but if you've been... If your interest has been tweaked by what we've been discussing, you can seek it out and you can help support your local Strand, the, the Strand Art Centre here in Belfast um, by renting it through DogWoofs Online Player. And we will have the links for this on the bio for this podcast. So that pretty much brings everything to a close. So all that's left for me to do now is just to go around this virtual panel and thank you all. So thank you very much, Joanna. Thank you. Thank you very much, Esther.
2: Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you. And thank you very much, Mick.
3: Bye.
1: (laughs) So that pretty much brings this podcast to a close. Thanks to Esther, Mick, Sarah and Joanna. I think that's everybody who took part in our virtual panel for MLK FBI. And more importantly, of course, thanks to you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If this was your first time checking out the pod, you can find our complete back catalogue on our website at www.banderflix.com, And there not only will you find the backlog, and there not only will you find the backlog of our podcast, but also our TV show on NVTV, and of course we've reviews and features. I know our very own Victoria Brown has just written a lovely piece about the 60th anniversary of 101 Dalmatians, and when you're on the website. You might even want to check out our Patreon page to see some of the goodies that you can get through supporting us and uh, that helps us carry on doing the pod, particularly in these uncertain times when we're not able to put on events right now. It definitely helps and I know we have a couple of patrons, so, you know, thank you guys. You know who you are. Thank you for your support. You get your pods earlier than anybody else and you also get some extra pods as well. So uh, it's definitely worthwhile checking out. And uh, yeah, so that's... That's pretty much everything I have to do. You know, just a quick heads up. As I said at the start in my introduction, we're not going to be reissuing any old pods for a little while. We took a little break over Christmas, a much needed break to recharge the batteries, but it's great to be back doing the pods, I have to admit. You know, the hour or so, the hour and a half that it takes to record them, it's something to do something to talk something to talk about, talking about movies, something I love to do, and it's great to be able to do it again. So in the coming weeks we are gonna have some new pods for you. Um next week our pod is all about Wandavision. It's a comic book one oh one. We haven't done those for quite some time. We're doing those again with Aaron Flanagan from the Comic Book Guys, great comic book shop here in Belfast. And it's not really an in-depth discussion on Wandavision because we recorded it only after two episodes had aired on Disney Plus. It's more so about the comic book origins of the characters, the writers, the artists, how their origins differ slightly from what we've seen on screen and also some of the notable comic book issues and stories you maybe want to seek out after watching WandaVision. I've just seen the third episode and thought it was great. I'm definitely intrigued. Uh, I'll be interested to see what you guys think at home. But that's really that. I know we also have some new crime scene to screen on the way. Therese and Joel have recorded that. I believe it's all about the Zodiac Killer. It's a two-parter, so you'll get the first part in Feb and the second part in March. And uh, I mentioned earlier on Victoria Brown, our resident Disney queen. I'll be teaming up with her again pretty soon, I would say, in February, as we delve once again into the dark age of Disney's back catalogue. And I think we're talking about Winnie the Pooh. I'm very excited about that. Who doesn't love a bit of Winnie the Pooh? So that's all to look forward to. We also have a new regular pod feature with uh, cosplayer Gabrielle Radio. You'll have maybe heard Gabrielle a couple of times in this pod. She hasn't been on for a while. But um, we're letting Gabrielle host her own show on the pod. It'll be monthly, where she well, at the minute, I was going to say she sits down, but uh, she's once again virtually sitting down with other cosplayers from around the UK and chatting to them about the movies that got them into cosplaying and some of the costumes that they've done. We've had Gabrielle, as I said, on the pod before. She did a panel for us for the Dark Hedges International Film Festival about that, about getting into cosplaying, so I thought we would turn it into a monthly feature. And, uh, yeah, I've... uh, just heard the first episode and that's a lot of fun. That'll be with you in Feb and hopefully as well we'll have new episodes of We Need to Talk About Movie Music and just general rambly rambleness from yours truly. So yeah it's great to be back. I know there's a lockdown on. I know that it's all doom and gloom in January right now but things will get better and uh, hey if we can entertain you whether you're in the bath listening to this, if you're in bed, if you can't sleep, or if you're out for a drive, out for a walk, or if you're just kind of doing a bit of work in the office and you've got us on the background. So hopefully we can keep you entertained. And uh, that's pretty much everything I've got to say. I've been your host, Jim McLean, the Editor-in-Chief of the Bantaflix Movie Review website. We'll be back next week with another episode. But for now, until then, goodbye.
0: has been we need to talk about movies thanks for listening for more information visit banterflix.com see you next time